Okay, this text today is Matthew 5, 33 through 37, page 5 in the Pew Bible in the New Testament section of the Bible. Good morning, or good afternoon. <laughs> Again, you have heard said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Uh, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you are present here, even now, by your word, uh, by your spirit. I pray that you would fill this place, God, that people, that we would experience you, experience your goodness, experience your love, which you have poured out by giving us your son. And it is, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. In the fall of 1989, Alexi Santana was welcomed by Princeton University as a freshman. The admissions committee found his life story extraordinary. Alexi Indris Santana was a self-taught orphan from the state of Utah. He grew up in his childhood basically on his own, living outdoors in the Grand Canyon, where he herded cattle, raised sheep, and then read philosophers. He ran in the Mojave Desert and trained for long-distance running. And when he came onto campus, he quickly became a star. He earned A's in almost all of his courses. And when he was asked why was his bed always perfectly made every single day, his answer was that he slept on the floor, which made sense because he spent most of his life living outdoors. But all of it was a lie. It was a lie. 18 months after he had entered Princeton, it was discovered that this student was really James Hogue, a 31-year-old who had actually spent time in prison for theft, and he was removed from Princeton in handcuffs. James Hogue lived a life full of lies. You've got to stop and wonder, how many lies did he have to tell, did he have to concoct to get into Princeton on a scholarship? But if you think about it, we're not all that different from James Hogue. I read somewhere that the average person tells about four lies a day. So over a course of a year, that's 1,500 lies. We might recoil at the deception of James Hogue, but if we're honest, there's James Hogue in each one of us. Why would James Hogue go through all this trouble to create this persona, to pass himself off as something that he wasn't? Was he trying to save face? Was he trying to impress others? Maybe he was trying to look better than he actually was or feel better. Lying, however, is just sadly common in our day and age. One philosopher said, the lie is a condition of life. And Mark Twain wrote, a man is never more truthful than when he acknowledges himself a liar. And sadly, 
it's even common among professing Christians. Christians, professing Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to lie on tax returns, to plagiarize, to exaggerate about a product, or to tell people what they want to hear. Lying might be common in our culture, in our, in our age, might be even expected to get ahead, but as kingdom citizens, King Jesus calls us to a higher standard. In our passage today, we'll see that kingdom citizens speak truthfully because we always speak in the presence of our king. Kingdom citizens speak truthfully because we always speak in the presence of our king. If you're new here, uh, we've been spending the past several months going through the book of Matthew uh, in our sermon series, and we've slowed down a bit to go through the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing his disciples on how to live life in his kingdom. He has given us laws to obey, marching orders for his people. R.T. France writes about Jesus. He, he is the new Moses and the new Israel experiencing a new exodus. He is one greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than the temple and its priesthood. In him, all that was central to Israel's life and calling as the people of God has reached its perfect embodiment. So this is, the, this is the one who speaks to us even now. We need to listen to him. He's the one greater than Solomon and any other king, greater than Jonah and any other prophet, greater than the temple, because in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He is the new Moses, the divine lawgiver and interpreter. And in him, in his redemption, we are experiencing the new exodus, where we're brought out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this earth, and brought into the kingdom of heaven, a new kingdom, a new way of living. And we've seen how radical this kingdom ethic is, this new way of living. We've seen how uh, committing lust with your eyes makes you guilty of adultery, or anger in your heart makes you guilty of murder. And now King Jesus is going to talk about how we use our mouth, how we use our tongue, how we use our words, because God cares about the smallest details of our lives. He knows the number of hairs on our head, and not one dot, not one comma will pass away from the law until it's all fulfilled. So God cares about even the smallest thing, even the smallest things that we might think are no big deal. And God is a God of truth who speaks only the truth. And because we're made in his image, he expects us to do the same. But because of the fall, because of sin, because of corruption, our speech is not what it should be. Instead of telling truth, we speak lies. We speak half-truths, exaggerations, and even outright lies. And because we as human beings lie, we, we don't tend to tell the truth, especially when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable, sometimes we have to go out of our way to get the truth out of someone through an oath. When we make someone swear an oath, we go out of our way to make sure this person is actually telling the truth because we as human, sinful human beings tend to lie. And our lies are the byproduct of the fall. John Stott writes, uh, if divorce is due to human hard-heartedness, swearing is due to human untruthfulness. Both were permitted by the law. Neither was commanded. Neither should be necessary. So because of the fall, because of human sin, hard-heartedness, and wickedness, we see the need at times for divorce, or we see the need at times for oaths. 
These are exceptional situations. Oaths should be unnecessary, right? If everyone just told the truth, you could take people at their word. There's no need to put someone under oath. But they're permitted because human beings have a tendency to lie. So in this passage, Jesus is going to talk about our speech. He's going to talk about the use of oaths. And he's going to begin by correcting a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the law. We've seen this pattern before. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So let's look at verse 33. Jesus is going to draw a contrast. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. The Pharisees are likely bringing in two of the Ten Commandments here. The third one, uh, do not, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the ninth one, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And together, they can be used to teach into oaths and vows. But then when they brought them together, they begin to get into some trouble. So the first part of 33, uh, you shall not swear falsely, that actually refers to oaths. An oath where, that you might take if you are in a court of law and called to be on the witness stand, where you're called to swear to, to tell the whole truth, you know, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And when someone does that, if you were ever to be called upon to do that, you are pledging in a solemn and serious way to tell the truth because the stakes are so high. Someone's life could be on the line. So an oath should never be taken lightly. And it's likely that the, the, the Pharisees are referencing a passage such as Leviticus 19.12 that says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And when someone takes an oath, this is Oath 101 here, if you're not familiar with oaths here, there's, there's two different parts. There's a confession and a curse. In the confession, we swear before God and others that we're telling the truth and we're asking God to be our witness, to verify that what we say is actually true. That's the confession. The second part is a curse, where God is called not just to be the witness of what we're saying, that, it's, that whether or not it's true, but that God is called upon to be the judge and avenger of those who would swear falsely. And a curse, if you think about it, is actually necessary because of what it means to swear falsely. Someone who swears falsely is staking God's reputation, God's name, upon a lie. So if someone lies under oath, they're asking God to be witness to a lie, but then affirm that it's the truth. And so God's name is taken in vain in that situation, and that's so serious that, that we see even in the Ten Commandments, there's a reminder of judgment for those who take his name in vain. The Lord will not take him guiltless hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And only two of the Ten Commandments actually include a reference to judgment, and this is one of them. A theolo theologian wrote, has written that when we, when we confess an oath, it's actually a confession of faith where we testify that God and no one else, not even ourselves, is the one who verifies our words. So when we call upon God to verify our words, we better be absolutely sure that what we say, what's about to come out of our mouth, is true. So the Pharisees are teaching here that you shouldn't commit perjury. You shouldn't lie under oath. You shouldn't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So that's the first part of verse 33, oaths. Okay? The second part in verse 33, 
Perform to the Lord what you have sworn refers to vows. Vows. A vow is a binding pledge or promise before God to do something. Right? So, for example, someone might take an oath of office, like a government, government officer. They might take an oath or a vow that they will serve the interests of the state. And it's likely that they were referen- the Pharisees were referencing a passage like Deuteronomy 23.21 in this part. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. And the people of God are called upon to fulfill a vow even if the other party wasn't completely forthright. You might recall from Joshua chapter 9, Joshua and the nation of Israel, they make a a covenant, a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites came to Joshua. They said that they came from a far country, and they heard about the greatness of Yahweh, and they wanted to make a peace treaty. But they deceived the nation of Israel. They were actually neighbors. They lived in the land of Canaan. They were afraid for their lives. And they, and they thought, well, we'll just make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. But once Joshua and the nation of Israel found out, oh, these guys are our neighbors. They're Canaanites. They still had to keep their vow. And hundreds of years later, when King Saul violated this vow by attacking and killing the Gibeonites, there was a three-year famine a three-year famine of judgment that God brought upon the nation of Israel. And, and the people of God are called. We, are, we must fulfill our vows even if it comes at a high cost. The righteous man of Psalm 15 fears the Lord and swears to his hurt and doesn't change. So we see the first part of 33 is referring to oaths. The second is vows. And then it, so far it sounds good, but we see the, see the problem in, in the next two verses, if we look at verse 34 and 35, Jesus saying, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. The problem is that the Pharisees were creating two different classes of oaths and vows. There were, number one, oaths and vows to the Lord, and you had to keep those. And then there were oaths and vows uh, by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, and you didn't really have to keep those. What they did was they were creating a loophole so you didn't have to keep your word. So, it, so in their system, if you swore by something else and you broke your oath or vow, it wasn't a big deal because you didn't actually swear by the name of the Lord. And historical documents confirm this. In the Mishnah, which was the oral interpretation of the Torah, oaths by heaven and earth and by your own head weren't binding by some authorities. And some teachers of the law even went further by saying, okay, if if you swore by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, it doesn't really count. If you had to get out of it, that's okay. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, you had to keep that. So as long as you didn't swear toward Jerusalem, you had a way out. And what they were doing, what these Pharisees were doing was they were leading people to think, well, as long as I didn't commit perjury, as long as I I didn't lie under oath when the name of God was invoked, I'm good. And what they did was they weren't promoting a culture of truth-telling and honesty and communication, but a culture of lies and deceit. See, the Pharisees were telling people, well, sometimes you need an oath, right, Because, because human beings are prone to lie. 
You don't know if you can trust someone. You might need an oath to back up what you're saying. Otherwise, people won't believe you. But here's a way to make an oath or a vow and get out of it at the same time. Here's a way to, to have your cake and eat it too. You can just swear by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, just not toward Jerusalem and not in God's name, and then you can break your word. And then you won't actually have violated the third commandment because the Lord's name wasn't invoked. It's a way to get out of keeping your word. And even children do this. I remember when I was a child, you know, we would make promises. I promise this is the truth, or I promise to do something, but then there was a way, you know, this is way back when, you could get out of it. If you crossed your fingers, if you crossed your fingers, then it really didn't count. Now, kids, we all have different ways of getting out of something, right? And so this is what the Pharisees were promoting. And the Pharisees had it all backwards because they were missing the spirit of the law, and they failed to teach God's law faithfully. See, in his word... God's word's very clear. We're only supposed to take oaths or vows in the name of God. Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So the Pharisees changed the law by adding to it, by adding all these different categories. You could swear by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, all these other categories. But it's interesting that This isn't the point Jesus makes when he's correcting this misunderstanding of God's law. He doesn't say, wrong, you're only supposed to swear in the name of the Lord your God, which would have been true. He he doesn't throw Deuteronomy 6.13 at the Pharisees. He actually gets right to the heart of the matter, the failure to love and worship and honor God through our speech. See, it's not just a failure of the law, it's a failure of our worship. See, everything we do and say and think is in the presence of our God. And that's why whether we eat or drink whatever we do, we need to do all to the glory of God. So there's no such thing as oaths you need to keep and oaths you don't need to keep. And so Jesus warns us that we're just fooling ourselves, that if we think, if we swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, we're off the hook. And the reason is that God's created everything. God sustains everything. It all belongs to God anyways. So when you swear by heaven, it's God's heaven, his throne. When you swear by earth, it's actually God's earth, his footstool. And when you swear by Jerusalem, it's God's Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And that's the point that Jesus makes later on in Matthew 23, 16, when he condemns the Pharisees for creating these loopholes in the law. He says, woe to you blind guides who say, well, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Whoever swears by the temple swears by, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So there's no loophole. There's no loophole. We always speak in the presence of God, which means we must always speak truthfully. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, But surely to tell a lie is as bad as perjury. For as Christians, we should always speak as in the presence of God. Everything we do is of tremendous importance. Everything in our lives and conversations is in His presence and may indeed be the thing which will determine what others will think of him. 
And Jesus goes on in verse 36, and do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Most of the people in Israel, people in the Middle East would have had black hair, and it would have turned white over time because of aging. And some people would have chosen to swear by their own head to add weight to it. And people do that by saying, well, I, I bet my life on it, or over my dead body, where you just insert something to just add more credibility, add more weight. But again, they're missing the point, because we do everything in the presence of God, and God has been eliminated from the equation. They've forgotten. People who do that forget that we are finite, and we're sinful. We have, we're not guaranteed another day, let alone another another hour on this earth. So how could we possibly guarantee that something will or will not happen by our own strength or power or might? Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Kingdom citizens speak truthfully because we always speak in the presence of our king. Before we go any further, I want to take a step back and take a closer look at verse 34, where Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that we should never take an oath or never take a vow? Some Christians throughout history have interpreted it that way. The Anabaptists in the 16th century and Quakers actually never take an oath. When they're in court, they, they, they don't take an oath in court. They don't take an oath of office. Is that the right interpretation of this passage? Well, when when we're interpreting Scripture, there's two important things to consider. The first is the context, what's going on in and around the passage. And then the second is what does all of Scripture have to say about a given topic? So the context that Jesus is speaking into here is careless oaths in everyday conversation. And we know that from verse 37. Verse 37 says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And during the time of the New Testament, and even in our culture, people like to throw around oaths and and swear in just casual conversation. Well, think about the people who say, uh, I swear, I swear to God that this is the truth. I swear this is the truth. Or they say, uh, this is the honest to God truth. Or other people might say, honestly, before their sentences. They say, honestly, I think this is a terrible idea. Honestly, I don't think you should do this. Honestly, honestly, honestly. But what does it mean when somebody says something like that? Does that mean that they're only honest when they insert the word honestly before their sentence? And then every other time, they're lying to you? Or people who say, I promise. I promise, I promise, or I guarantee. Does that mean that they're not serious if they don't insert the word I promise or I guarantee before their sentence? Jesus says, don't be that kind of person. Don't be the person who has to insert honestly or I promise, I guarantee, otherwise people won't believe you. Don't be the person who has to throw around, well, I swear this is the truth. I swear to God this is the truth. Otherwise, people won't believe you. Say what you mean and mean what you say. As Christians, we should be so well known for telling the truth that those things should be unnecessary that oaths should really be unnecessary in our normal, everyday conversation. So Jesus isn't forbidding all oaths. He's forbidding all unnecessary oaths because, like we talked about earlier, there might be a time, like in a court of law or an oath of office, where someone might need to take an oath. They might be called upon by a higher authority to take an oath. So that's the context, careless oaths in everyday conversation. 
But let's take a, take a step back to look throughout, you know, throughout Scripture where we see at certain times and places an oath is actually good and necessary. Genesis 24, Abraham makes his servant swear an oath that he won't take a, son, take a wife for his son Isaac from among the Canaanites. He makes his servant swear that he'll uh, take a wife from among his own kindred, from a, among his own people. Jesus is put under oath by the high priest to testify whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, in that court of law, he answers under oath. And Paul actually uses oaths in key moments in his letters. In the introductory chapter of some of his letters, like Romans, Galatians, and Philippians, he uses the phrase, God is my witness. God is my witness. And he ends the book of 1 Thessalonians with, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. We see Abraham, Jesus, Paul, but finally, God himself swears oaths. For example, in Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And this raises yet another interesting question. Why would God feel the need to swear an oath? Why would he need to vow? Why would he need to swear to do something? Well, is it because God isn't trustworthy? Is it because God is going to change his mind? Well, no. Well, God isn't a man that he should lie, not a son of man that he should change his mind. He did it for us, for his people, because we lack faith. We have sinful unbelief. So God, when he swore that oath to Abraham and to all who would believe in Christ by faith, when he swore the oath, he voluntarily came down to our level. He came down to our level to strengthen our faith and to affirm his dependability. The writer of Hebrews goes on, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So because we are weak in faith, because we are tempted towards unbelief, God came down to our level. He condescended and swore an oath, gave us a promise on top of the reality that it's impossible for God to lie so that at the end of the day, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So an oath, when it's done rightly, when it's done lawfully, soberly, and rarely, can actually be a good thing. It must be lawfully, so don't swear falsely and don't vow to do something sinful. It must be done soberly. When you swear an oath, you need to be absolutely sure it's the truth. And if you were to swear a vow, you need to have every intent and the ability to carry it out. Don't promise what you can't deliver. If you can't deliver, don't promise. And it must be rarely. See, the more frequently you swear an oath or more frequently you vow something, the more likely you are to violate it. And when it's done frequently, it actually dilutes its value. It loses its, its weightiness, its importance. So Jesus isn't forbidding all oaths or vows. He's forbidding unnecessary oaths. 
Because as God's people, we should be so known for telling the truth in our everyday conversation. It should be unthinkable that we would have to resort to an oath so that others would believe us. The goal is that we would be truth tellers in all of our speech with all the people around us. Because God, because our God and King is a truth teller. He only speaks the truth and he never lies. Kingdom citizens speak truthfully because we always speak in the presence of our king. And let's look once again in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So in our everyday conversation, as I mentioned earlier, we shouldn't have to use I swear or I swear to God this is the truth or honestly or I promise. Our speech shouldn't be yes plus an oath or no plus an oath. Our yes should be as good as an oath. Our no should be as good as an oath. And notice in verse 37 that there's only two options, yes or no. There's no maybe. But how much we love the word maybe. Some of us like to put maybe when we receive an invitation. We'd like, we'd like to come. We'd like others to like us because they think we're coming. But here's the question. Do we really intend to come? Or do, are we looking to have it both ways? In our non-committal culture, maybe's got to be the word that wins the most MVP awards. And I'm guilty of this myself, okay? Because I want people to like me. I can be wishy-washy in my conversation. A couple years ago, a friend called me out on this. There was a group of us, three or four guys. We, we met once a month for, for fellowship, for accountability. It's usually Friday mornings at 6 a.m., sometimes at Dunkin' Donuts. It was one time we were together, and I suggested that for our group that we should read a book. But I didn't want to pressure people, so I said something like, we should read this book, but I realize you guys are busy, so you really don't have to. And it was this long-winded answer that was self-contradictory and lacked any meaningful content. Now, if I really wanted us to read this book, I should have said, I want us to read this book. But let me know what you think. But instead, I was trying to, you know, play both sides. And again, just trying to please people. And our vagueness in communication can be a problem because when we camouflage our true intent, we can, we can conceal, we can suppress the truth. And so often we are tempted to be vague because it's easier to say maybe than say no. But if our maybe is really a no, then are we telling the truth or are we really telling a lie? For Christians, there's no room for us to be vacillating. Christians, we are called to clarity. Paul applied this in his ministry. He writes in 2 Corinthians, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So even though Paul wanted to visit the city of Corinth, to visit the church there, and was tempted to vacillate, he provided clarity in his communication. And that clarity, that truthfulness, is rooted in the character of God. Because God is faithful, and because God is true to his word, we must also be true to our word. Van Bruggen writes, Only a sincere yes or no is appropriate in God's kingdom. 
Nothing is ambiguous in the kingdom of heaven. Everything is crystal clear. This means that we have to be upright in our contact with family and friends, and that we must be faithful to promises and honor them. Anything else comes from the evil one. So church, let us, let us examine ourselves and examine how we speak, whether we speak out of love for God and others, love for God and others, or out of love for self. Let us examine, do we speak out of the fear of God or out of the fear of man? Can't have it both ways. We, we either honor God above man or we honor man above God. So let us choose this day whom we will serve with our speech. Do we speak in such a way that we honor God or do we speak in such a way that we're trying to save face or impress others or feel better or make other people like us? We may not even realize it at times. There's times we might even exaggerate, say, some, say how, how amazing or how wonderful something is. And we can throw around words so carelessly to make a point or to impress other people. Do we speak in the presence of God, knowing that we speak in the presence of God, or, or only in the presence of man? So where does the Lord, where is the Lord calling you to, to speak the truth with clarity? Where are you tempted to be vague in your communication, to fudge the truth, or to simply tell other people what they want to hear? Day by day, week by week, can your words be trusted? Are your words reliable? If you say you're going to be at a certain place at a certain time, do you actually intend to be there at that time? And I realize there are exceptions. You can't plan for that accident on the freeway that delays you by half an hour. But I admit it, okay, it cannot, that is often a struggle for me because I love to squeeze in something at the very last minute and wait until the very last minute to, to start heading on my way to the next thing. Our culture, our culture views truth as a luxury. It's nice to have. It's nice if you can be open and honest, if your yes means yes, if your no means no. But it's not a luxury for God's people. It's a requirement. God requires us as disciples of Jesus Christ, as his image bearers, to tell the truth, to speak the truth. But the problem is that even though God is true and only speaks the truth, each one of us, every one of us is a liar. We go astray from birth telling lies, speaking lies. And the bigger problem is that God hates lies and hates those who tell them. So look at Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira are executed on the spot for telling a single lie. They pretended to be more generous than they actually were. And God put them to death right then and there. And you might be thinking, well, how could God do that? Isn't that harsh? Uh, the, the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime. But that's, that's asking the wrong question. The right question should be, well, why didn't God put me to death the first time I lied? We're warned on the day of judgment that each one of us will give an account for every careless word we speak. James Hogue might have pulled a fast one on Princeton for 18 months, but he was eventually found out. And how much more will every careless word, every lie, every exaggeration, every half-truth be found out by God on the day of judgment? Revelation 21 is sobering. Sobering. All liars will have their portion in the lake of fire, the second death. 
we can read that, and that could stop us in our tracks. One of the functions of God's law, God's law, is to show us our need for King Jesus. If you, if you see that you fall short of God's glory, that you don't live up to his standard of truthfulness, that your yes isn't always a yes, your no isn't always a no, there's good news for you. If you humbly admit that you have sinned and fall short of his glory, that you've broken his commandments, that you're not good, then there's hope. Jesus came for people like you and me, for people who lie. He always told the truth. His yes was always a yes. His no was always a no. There was nothing ambiguous when Jesus communicated. People knew exactly who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He fulfilled all the law, all the prophets, and then he died as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. So if you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in the Savior, if you haven't surrendered your life to King Jesus, Christ calls you even now, even now to come to him, to admit that you're a sinner, to admit that you need a Savior. And by faith, you can receive all of him. You can receive him in his life, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, and receive the forgiveness that you need and the eternal life you desperately need. And for those of us here who have trusted in the Savior, who have come to him in repentance and faith, for those of us those of us who have received the gospel, received Christ, let us walk in him. Let us walk in him. Christ has saved us from lies, from deceit, from deception, and freed us to tell, speak the truth, to live a life of honesty and integrity. As kingdom citizens, we're called to a new way of living and a new way of speaking. In Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone the new has come. And all this is from God. How amazing is His grace. So let us walk that out this week. Let us walk, this, walk that out this year. Because as kingdom citizens, we speak truthfully because we always speak in the presence of our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is by Your grace that we can come to You. Were it not for the sacrifice of Your Son, there would be no hope for any one of us. Without his death, without the, the punishment placed upon his head, Lord, our destiny would be the lake of fire, which is what your word says. All liars will have their portion in the lake of fire. But thanks to you, thanks to you for giving us your son, giving us the good news of the gospel. And I pray that in light of that sacrifice, in light of what you have done so richly, so generously, so, so abundantly, Lord. Let us walk in truth. Let us speak the truth in love. Let us be a people, Lord, by your spirit, whose yes means yes, whose no means no. In Christ's name we pray, amen.